On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come down from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who had been paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, and because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have heard your minister, our pastor, Jeff Neal, declare in your name today the complete and full forgiveness of our sins. And we ask that in these next few minutes, you will help us to grasp the staggering enormity of what that declaration means for us as we have this portion of your word open before us, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. So, good morning, everybody. Uh, I had the privilege last Sunday of uh, speaking at another CREC church, Trinity Reformed Church in uh, Moscow, Idaho. They asked me to preach on, well, any text from this portion of Luke's gospel, and I chose this one. And I had planned on returning here to get back to Joshua, but then I couldn't get this out of my mind for a couple of reasons. The first is because they only gave me half an hour to preach. I mean, no, you know about those theological lightweights up in Moscow. But there's a more important reason. Uh, I had uh, come to realize from a number of pastoral interactions here with friends in the congregation in the last few days as well as in the last few weeks and months that this passage has some things that we might all need to hear and I wonder if I might crave your indulgence to go over them a little bit. In particular, I want to see what benefit this really remarkable, well-known but underappreciated text has to say by way of assurance for the anxious heart. And it's hard to imagine many places you could go which would be better than this, is it? Because of what the passage is really all about. What the passage is all about is forgiveness. This is a passage about what Pastor Neil just declared to us in the name of the triune God just a few minutes ago. 
Forgiveness has been mentioned a couple of times up to this point in Luke's Gospel, mentioned by Zechariah, mentioned by John the Baptist. A very similar word, though with perhaps a slightly different meaning, is mentioned by Jesus in his sermon in Luke chapter 4. But here, four times in the space of five verses, right at the heart of the text, just look with me at verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes are grumbling, verse 21, and Jesus is sort of standing there, and they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 23, Jesus responds, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven. And then verse 24, the climax of the text, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, get up. It's kind of hard to miss the thrust of it, isn't it? When you have something hammered down our throats so many times, it awakens in us, I hope, a sense of, okay, we need to figure out what's such a big deal about forgiveness that it needs to be drummed into us here, and that's what I want to explore with you today. Really, the way I want to do this is to walk through the text in the company of the three groups of people that Jesus meets. There's the paralyzed man himself, there are Israel's leaders who are a little disgruntled by what they see, and then there's the man's friends, and I puzzled over this for a while, and well, we'll see where we get to at the end if we have any, can make any sense of the theological puzzle in verse 20, which we may come to towards the end. But let's begin with this paralyzed man, this unnamed and perhaps more famous than he dared to imagine, paralyzed man who experienced the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This episode actually occurs um, at the high point so far of Jesus' growing popularity. Basically, the story in Luke's gospel so far has been a bunch of stuff at the beginning, which you all know about because we just had Advent and Christmas, so you know all about that. And then Jesus begins his ministry there in chapter uh, 4, verse 14, and the, the popularity just goes through the roof. He's rejected in his hometown in chapter 4, but then everybody's rejected in their hometown. But again and again, the, chapter 4, verse 40, the sun's setting. Anybody who's got anybody with them who's sick and various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on them. Chapter 5, verse 1, the crowd's pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Chapter 5, verse 15, uh, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So you've got this growing crescendo of fascination with and desire to get close to Jesus Christ. But this is going a little bit over the top, isn't it? He's probably in his own home, according to the parallel passages in, in, in Mark and Matthew. And verse uh, 17, he's teaching, and there's a bunch of Pharisees, teachers of the law there, and the power of the Lord is with him to heal. Verse 18, and look, uh, the crowd is evidently too great for some people to get close to him. So verse 18, behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they're seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, because everybody is seeking to bring their sick and lame and blind and paralyzed friends in to lay him before Jesus. But there's no way in, but finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, and you all know, because you've all heard sermons on this passage before, about the peculiar architecture of ancient Palestinian roofs. Uh, you know that uh, things were done up there. It wasn't just a thing to keep the rain off. It was a flat area, really another living quarters, hence Joshua chapter 2, for example. You can store stalks of flax up there and hide spies underneath them. It was like a kind of bed and breakfast, an ancient version of Airbnb. And anyway, so they go up there, and start stamping and picking away at the roof tiles, and they let this guy in on his bed into the midst before Jesus. And I, I wondered last week, as I wonder again, whether there's something in this 
Uh, they're dismantling the house. Jesus is going to dismantle a house towards the end of the gospel, the temple. He'll go in and dismantle that house and prophesy, prophesy its complete dismantling. Maybe there's something of that going on here. But really, the surprise comes when this man lands amid the dust and broken tiles and bits of dirt and people falling over themselves and getting stuff in their eyes. And there he is, lying on the floor on his mat in front of Jesus. And look, you know what's supposed to happen because Jesus has got a reputation as a healer. Chapter 4, verse 40. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Chapter 5, verse 15. All these crowds are gathering to be healed of their infirmities. So why did the man... Why did the man's friends, pardon me, bring him to Jesus? Why did they go to all this effort? Their friend, who's been paralyzed, don't know how long. Why did they go to all this effort for? Obviously, because they wanted to be healed. And so he's lowered onto the ground, and Jesus says, my son, rise and walk. Nope. Look at it. Is it bizarre? This dramatic moment, end of verse 20, when he saw their faith, he's lying on the mat, paralyzed, unable to move for who knows. It might have been weeks. It might have been months. It might have been years, decades, man, your sins are forgiven you. And he's still there, lying on the floor, gazing upward, no doubt somewhat perplexed, into the eyes of the Messiah, who has just ignored the glaringly obvious problem that his legs don't work, and started talking about forgiveness. Like, who mentioned forgiveness, Jesus? What's the big deal about forgiveness? Except that perhaps there is. And of course, the, the most obvious lesson that shouts and screams at us from this passage is that maybe there is. Maybe, sir, there is something wrong that goes deeper even than the fact that you cannot walk. Now, being paralyzed in any time in history must be, or to call it debilitating, it hard, it's hardly possible for those of us who are able to walk and run and do all those things easily, to imagine what it must be like. The powerlessness, the sense of indignity in relation to just normal daily activities, the sense of helpless dependence. And Jesus apparently thinks there's something that's a bigger deal your sins are forgiven. See, we just see that which is obvious and physical and external and, I don't know, are, is it that we're so preoccupied with those things that is the reason why Jesus responds in this way perhaps? But he sees what he's really concerned about and he speaks to that first. Maybe this puts things in perspective for a few of us. Maybe there have been things about which you've been concerned this last week. About which, if you brought them to Jesus in prayer, he would say nothing at all until he'd said, your sins are forgiven. Because the great physician knows what's really wrong with us. Does he not? I wonder, though, whether there's another point that, that might be emphasized here that you see, there is a certain, hmm, not a certain, a couple of kinds of people who particularly need to hear about forgiveness. There's a certain kind of person, there are people like this here, 
I know, even if I didn't know you all, and I know most of you well enough now, but even if I knew none of you at all, just statistically, I know there will be in a group this size, that certain kind of person who's prone to self-doubt, a certain kind of person who's prone to self-recrimination, a certain kind of person who doesn't so much need that portion of the service before the confession of sins that Pastor Neil and I uh, both sometimes extend with some specific comments about those sins concerning which we might need forgiveness because you're so acutely conscious of your unworthiness before God that you just think there's, there's just like, yeah, Pastor, I know that you, you forgave the sins of all those other people in the name of Jesus, but the problem is you don't really know what I'm like. And if you did, well, if you did, you, maybe you wouldn't, you know, be quite so, what was the, the, the phrase from Ephesians? Lavish, is that it? You wouldn't be so lavish throwing forgiveness around if you knew the things I had to be forgiven for, pastor. And you know what Jesus would say? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. There's a theological version of this, I guess, which is similar, but it's a different temperament of person. There's the person who's haunted by the last judgment texts of the New Testament. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive what is due to him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The the last judgment is not just where unbelievers need to stand before God, because we kind of don't have to go through the last judgment. We will stand before God and give an account for our deeds, good and evil. And there's a, a hesitant anxiety in in some of us. How how can we contemplate approaching that day? Well, you can't. Unless, okay, there's a simple answer to this and there's a complicated answer. I'll give you the simple answer first because this isn't the time to be messing around with theology. You don't want to go to the last judgment day until your sins have been forgiven in advance. And now they have. Okay, there's a more complicated answer which is actually not complicated in a bad way. I think it's just richer and deeper. Um, I can't remember, I've, I read this quote somewhere which ca- encapsulates it wonderfully and I can't remember where I read it. It might be Tom Wright, somebody will tell me who it's from. Um, God has done in Christ, in the middle of history, what he had always warned that he was going to do to the whole world at the end of history. The word of God is filled with warnings of the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, the day of judgment of the Almighty, the day of wrath, the day when he will wreak vengeance on the living and the dead. And God has brought that day forward from the end of history to the middle of history. And the judgment has already fallen on Jesus Christ. So the reason you can stand confidently before the judge on the last day is because you've already been judged for your sins. Christ suffered there in himself on the cross the full death and judgment and pain and curse and abandonment according to his human nature by his father that all of us deserve for our sins against God. The reasons why you, reason why you won't be punished on the last day is because you already have been. You're united with the one who stood in your place. And so, 
you have as much right to feel anxious as this man has to argue with Jesus in verse 20. Right? Man, your sins are forgiven you. Oh, no, they're not, Jesus. You want to know what I've done? Uh, no. I don't want to know what you've done. In fact, I, as far as the east is from the west so far, have my sins been taken from me? Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to know what you've done in that sense. When, when your pastor, as he did today, uh, stands up before you and declares, and I quote again, the full and complete forgiveness of your sins in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not Jeff speaking. You understand that? This is why we're dressed like Jesus to do this. I have no business standing in this pulpit to declare to you the Word of God. Only Jesus gets to declare to you the Word of God, so I speak in the name of Jesus. Pastor Neil has no, well, no, Jeff has no business declaring to you the complete and full forgiveness of your sins. But when he's speaking in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you don't get to argue. I don't feel forgiven. Well, there's a, you know, there's a flip side to the sermon from two weeks ago about stuff your feelings. It's like stuff your feelings when you don't feel forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? Like, genuinely, you don't, you don't get to argue with Jesus however wretched you feel when he declares that your sins are forgiven. And this man doesn't either. And he, I bet he felt no different. You know, he's lying there on the floor. I mean, he probably did feel different. probably felt a bit silly. Can you imagine? The first person that the Messiah has failed to heal. You, would, you really don't want to go down in history with that moniker, do you? But... Did he, did he feel some kind of special ooshy-gooshy inside? I don't know. I don't, don't expect so. It doesn't say so. He felt exactly the same. Because he's told to trust the word of the living God. A wonderful story that is told about Charles Spurgeon, um, which is tangentially related to this, but I'll tell you this story because it's a wonderful story. And what it does is it, it highlights the, the significance of what I'm talking about, about hearing the word of the living God. Is said that um, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon showed up at a church somewhere where somebody said, um, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I have a word from the Lord for you. And he's like, well, yeah, I'm, yeah, that's fine, but I'm really not interested in hearing it. And the man said, yeah, but, but no, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, you've got to understand, I really need to tell you this, an angel from God came. An angel told me this word, and I have to share this word with you. And Mr. Spurgeon's like, oh, for goodness sake. Okay. Um, go on, if you must. And this guy told him some trite thing about how maybe one, maybe the Lord is watching over you or something, I don't know. Like those kind of uh, emotionally hypersensitive words from angels so often are when they're dreamt up by uh, slightly insecure consciences. And then Mr. Spurgeon replied, he said, so I told you I didn't want you to tell me and now I'm very sorry that you have done so because I used to trust in the word of God and now you're teaching me to trust in the word of an angel. Which kind of makes the point, doesn't it? You, you, you don't get to disagree when the word of God says your sins are forgiven. And I don't care how you feel about it, really. So then, that's this man. Second, Let's look at the religious leaders who um, received with somewhat less enthusiasm the 
encounter with Jesus and the words that he spoke. Just look with me at verse 20. Uh, Jesus saw the faith of the man's friends. He said, your sins are forgiven. Verse 21, look with me. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you see the reason for their outrage. They, they realize that Jesus is either claiming to be God himself, or he's claiming to speak authoritatively in the name of God, and either way, they're not having it. It's, a, it's an unacceptable, blasphemous utterance in their view. And so, within that matrix of uh, misunderstanding and hostility, Jesus' healing of the paralyzed man serves a very different purpose, doesn't it? It's actually directed to them. Just look at me at verse 22. Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered them. So he's talking to them now. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? And of course it's kind of obvious which is easier to say. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven precisely because you can't see the evidence of it. But then he says, verse 24, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He tells a paralyzed man to get up. So what you can see proves the authority that Jesus has to do what you can't see. And that's it's another element of the internal logic of the parable, isn't it? And so, but what's interesting, um, not the parable, the episode. No, parable, what am I talking about? The, the, the episode that as Jesus confronts these unbelieving, hostile Jewish leaders. Now, what's interesting about it is it doesn't appear to cause their hostility to him to be diminished. And I wonder whether there's something behind the scenes that's going on here. It's, it's interesting, when you look at the flow of Luke's gospel from this point on, this really is the first time you've had anything resembling hostility to Jesus. Apart from his hometown, and like I said, everyone, every prophet is rejected in his hometown. But by the end of this uh, section, they're pretty suspicious. Verse 30, they're grumbling because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Can you see a pattern uh, emerging? Chapter 6, verse 7, they're watching him to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath, because we can't have that, can we? Uh, suspicious, you see, and then in verse 11, they've seen him do that, and look at the, the intensity of their response, chapter 6, verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed what they might do to Jesus. Now, why? What, why would it be this episode that, that starts the ball rolling? Why would they not have been outraged by, I don't know, something else, raising of Lazarus, walking on the water, feeding the 5,000, and many other miracles? Why was it this that so aroused their hostility? And I wonder if it's because it's about forgiveness. He'd healed many, many, many people before this time. But I wonder if there is something outrageous about forgiveness that the Pharisees are responding to. It's not, in other words, it's not just that they're claiming that they're outraged, pardon me, because Jesus is claiming to have authority from God. That's not the whole of it. Jesus is claiming 
that the Lord is a forgiving God. And that's what they can't stomach, because forgiveness, it turns out, is an extremely difficult thing to handle, especially when it involves other people. And I want to talk about this for a few minutes, because there is a very grave danger that just as the the leading lights among the people of God in the first century, the Pharisees and the scribes, struggled with the idea of God's forgiveness being extended too promiscuously, too lavishly, that we may struggle in the same way. And I want to help us to uncover that if it's there. I think we often have a problem with forgiving people, with forgiving other people. We want to kind of hold on to the offense for a bit longer. I wonder, is it possible that some husbands here need to work on forgiving their wives? Is it possible that there are some wives here who have some way to go in forgiving their husbands? It's interesting. You could think about this in terms of uh, premarital preparation. We've got a few people here who are contemplating marriage. You know, really what you're doing is you're entering into a relationship where you'll have plenty of opportunities to forgive each other. Plenty of opportunities. I know he looks like he walks on water now, doesn't it? He's like, he's wonderful. Yeah, I know he's wonderful. We all think he's wonderful. We're really happy for you, but um, he doesn't walk. (laughs) He's not the Messiah. And you see, there is this, you see, what sometimes happens is that, um, was it Pastor Wilson says, we dole out forgiveness with a teaspoon. Always counting the doses. You know that pathology you get? And and you see this in marriages, and and people don't realize until you point it out. Maybe there's some here, you you will realize in the next few moments what I'm talking about. When you, You never say this, but you feel it in your heart. Like, okay, I've forgiven you now, so now you owe me. So now just think about that for half a second. You've forgiven her now, so now you, she doesn't owe you anything. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is that thing that you do where it's really painful because you actually have to forget about. You actually have to write off the, the wrong that's been done to you. It's a... And it's... A, tremendously painful experience emotionally as you approach that moment where you realize, I actually, you know, I don't believe it, she's going to apologize. Now what am I going to do? And it's like, yes, she's going to apologize. So now what are you going to do? See, now you're going to have to forgive her. And it's pardon, not parole. Yeah, it's not... yeah, you better be careful from now on, right? Because I've done this once, and I never want to have to do this again. Um, hold on, how many times was it? 70 times 7. Told you. Lots of forgiveness. Plenty to go round. So you get to the point. That what, do you, what does he or she owe you after you have dug deep and found forgiveness for them? The answer is nothing, except what you already owed each other, Romans 13, 8, the continuing debt to love one another, which is what you always already owed each other. And it's a strange experience, you know, and many of you will know this. In anticipation, 
it feels tremendously painful and almost like no that would be a step too far that, um, even asking for forgiveness sometimes feels like that never mind granting it and once you get through that it's like going through a kind of invisible dark barrier and if have you ever had that experience out the other side and it's like what was i even what was i even worried about the the if you've not had that please come and talk to me afterwards because we need to find out who he or she is and you need to forgive them you not forgiving somebody who's offended you is like drinking poison and I hope somebody else would die. And it's much better just to let it go. And one wonders how many of these scribes and Pharisees were not among those considerable number of the Jewish leaders in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, who actually turned to Christ. How many of them clung to that bitterness for decades and died with it? rather than accept that this Lord who we have been, whose, whose scrolls we have been reading for years and years, and, and whose temple we keep and whose worship we supervise, is a forgiving God. So, the scribes and the Pharisees. Finally, third, the man's friends... Oh, my word, the man's friends, which presents us with this theological puzzle. Did you notice that in verse 20? Just look with me. So they've come all this way. Uh, clearly, they, they must love their friend to do this for him. Verse 20, oh, 19, sorry, they lower him into the midst of this group for Jesus. And notice what, he, what it says, verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Whose faith did he see? See, it would be so cool. I was thinking this again last week. If Jesus said, as this man was lowered helplessly in front of him, uh, Jesus saw his faith and said, your sins are forgiven you. You could really preach that, right? Because the way it would go would be, this is a, a, a narrative all about Jesus looking into people's hearts. Jesus looks into the hearts of the Pharisees and finds resentment and lack of forgiveness. Jesus looks into the heart of this man, who doesn't say anything, but deep down in his heart, he sees the faith that this man needs, and so he forgives him. You really preach that, but unfortunately, it's not what the text says, so you can't. What the text says is that Jesus saw the faith of the man's friends, which is enough to give most sola fide Protestants heartburn. Because... Don't, we, we, all, we all want to profess, don't I assume, please, that a man is justified by faith alone. And you can't have faith for somebody else. Uh, ask me a question sometime about infant baptism. And expect me to point you to Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. Don't look at it now. But we'll talk about that another time. But you can't believe for somebody else. So what do we do? Like, you, you want to stay a Protestant? Like, I do, if possible. And I want to, both hands up, I am a sola fide Protestant as, as bright as the day is long. But what's going on here? What happens is this man is carried to Jesus and Jesus forgives him. So what, what deep and profound theological lesson are we to draw from this? Are, are there deeper mysteries to Christian soteriology that not even... The, 
senior Bible and theology class students have yet plumbed? Uh, uh, No, there aren't. See, what happens is that this man is carried to Jesus by his friends to show that sometimes you need to be carried to Jesus by your friends. I'd like you to think about that for a couple of minutes. One or two of you, I'd like you to think about really, really carefully because you're in the process or have been in the process of carrying somebody to Jesus. They've not been displaying much in the way of faith for the last few weeks or months or years that you've been wondering about them and praying for them and so on and so forth. And, and you know, they, they've been more or less kind of helpless. You kind of know that somewhere deep down, they, they, if you asked them, do you believe, they'd probably say yes, something. Like this man, if you said, look, do you believe in Jesus? I mean, I, I suspect he'd probably say yes. But you see, the way that the narrative is constructed is to show you that what you need to do is to carry him. Sometimes you need to be carried to Jesus. Uh, Sometimes it's you who does the carrying. Sometimes it's you who's carried. Sometimes you lack within yourself any of the resources necessary, physical, in the case of this man, emotional, resources, you you just, you know, you ever had one of of those experiences, like somebody says, um, would you like to pray? And you're like, "Um, yeah, but could you just pray for me? Ever said that? Ever had somebody say that to you? So now do you see? Of course, uh, we'd all like to play the perpetual victim, especially in, you know, woke 21st century America. So Jesus says, it's okay, you can stay there on your mat because you never need to do anything for yourself again. Oh, no. (laughs) Oops. Get up. Carry your mat. Go home. Let's get to work, shall we? You're not the only paralyzed man in Judea. Dangerous place, Judea, in the first century. You're not the only person who is weak, who is feeble, who lacks within themselves the resources even to bring themselves to their knees. Well, you can fall over, can't you? Could you do that? Or could you let somebody carry you? Or could you carry them? Because sometimes people will need you to do that. And immediately, verse 25, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, though by implication not the scribes and the Pharisees, sadly. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today, as indeed you do whenever you carry anybody to Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for this reminder of what we need to know and to feel most keenly, the inviolable truth of your word, which says our sins are forgiven in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen.